Hi, it's Joanna Oki here and welcome back to Talking Law, brought to you by our commercial legal practice, Aspect Legal. Now, today we're excited to have on the show Greg Savage of The Savage Truth, who brings to us a wealth of experience in building businesses, having taken just one of his businesses from startup to 60 million. Greg was voted the most influential person in the Australian recruitment industry in the past 60 years in 2015, and a year later was named the most influential business voice on Twitter in Australia. Now today, Greg is the founder and a significant shareholder of one of Australia's fastest growing recruitment companies, an active investor in a number of other recruitment and HR tech businesses in and outside of Australia, as well as an advisor and director for 14 recruitment companies in Australia, New Zealand and Singapore. And we were lucky enough to have him on Talking Law to talk about some key concepts in growing businesses about leadership and about the journey through listing his business on the ASX. So let's jump right into it. You're listening to Talking Law, the podcast where business owners just like you discover how to avoid legal landmines and build value using smart legal tips. Join your host, Joanna Oki, as she cuts through the legal jargon and gives you clear and simple, actionable legal strategies, which will get you optimal business results. Greg, thank you so much for joining us today. Do you ever have time to sleep? By the sheer volume of your background bio, I don't really see how you'd fit that in. Oh, you've got to, you've got to, uh, by the way, Joanna, thank you very much for having me on your podcast. But it's very important, it's very important to differentiate between PR and reality. So, um, so I, I, uh, I have plenty of time to sleep and, and, and do other things. In fact, I would be honest with you and say this particular stage of my work life, it's as good as it's ever been because very fortunate to, I probably work very hard for 40 weeks of the year and, and I do other things, um, with the rest of the time. But as as people who look at me and say, "Wow, that's lucky," I say, "Yeah, that's luck built on forty years of uh, yeah. of probably you know very very hard work, like yes. like everybody else. I mean, everybody works to to achieve what they're aiming for." Yes, yes. Well, look, I'd, I'd really like to start by a more serious question. Um, mm-hmm. first by running through a bit of your background, and perhaps to start off by talking about the first company that you founded, um, Recruitment Solutions. That's the first company that you founded. Yes. Is that Right. Yes, yep. that's uh, it's a while ago. So, so what happened there was that I was working for a company called Accountancy Personnel, which this is a long time ago, and that company um, was bought by Hayes, um, which is now one of the largest recruitment companies in in the world. Uh, at that time, Hayes was actually a, uh, a logistics company. They, they they transported things around, and they uh, they were um, diversifying, and they got into recruitment. Interestingly enough. Yeah, interestingly enough, they did so well at recruitment, they sold all their other interests uh, and all their other businesses over a period of 20 or 30 years. And now they are, I think, in the top 10 recruitment companies in the world. Anyway, I was I was the junior of three guys who were running the business out here in Australia. And they bought the business in the UK and, and the Australian subsidiary came along. We said to the Hayes guys, who were very nice guys, uh, people, look, we've been running your business here. It's very profitable. 
we would like to keep doing that, uh, but we'd like some equity in the local business. And they said, certainly not. We were very na- naive, I guess. They were, they were a publicly listed company. They weren't giving equity to some upstarts in the Antipodes. Right. And they didn't, treat, they didn't treat us that way at all, by the way. But I'm, I'm, so I'm being a little um, – uh, making a joke about that, yeah, but yeah. it prompted us to to start our own business. And when I say us, there was me and two others. I was actually the more junior of those three, mm-hmm. um, both in the hierarchy of the company we'd been at, but also in years. I think I was only twenty eight. Mm. But it um, off we went into this great endeavor. I, I put fifteen thousand dollars. We all put $15,000. This was wow. in the 80s, mind you. Yeah. $15,000 to start the company. I had to borrow that from my dad. I didn't have $15,000 when I was 28. That's probably having like $100,000 now. <laughs> and away away we went on this journey. And I have to say, it was a great journey. There was a lot of learnings and the business did exceptionally well after a period of time and, and after trading through uh, some some quite catastrophic recession in the, in the 1990s. So wow. it was an interesting time. Okay, all right. And so so you had two partners um, mm. at, at the initial phase. And did you start it from the ground up or did you start by the acquisition of another business? No, we, we, um, we started ambitiously in that we started with nine people, mm. uh, which, um, which was, you know, different to what most – the recruitment industry – is is uh, an industry made up of, of some very huge global players that you'd all be familiar with, like Adeco and um, Randstad and others, Hayes, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 in a few very few medium sized firms, and the vast majority are small, under ten people. Eighty percent of recruitment companies globally have less than ten people. Mm-hmm. So so to start with nine was ambitious, and we we did, um, and it was scary. I mean, we paid ourselves a lot less than we had to pay our staff, and all those sorts of things, but we, we didn't acquire a business. What we did acquire was some very good skills mm. of people and some relationships that they had, and they all had relationships with us because we'd worked together before. And so we were able to get momentum very quickly. That was mm. important, which we mm. needed because we needed cash flow, obviously. Mm. Mm. And so then, you know, the end of the story for this particular first business is that mm. you ended up growing it to be a $60 million company. I mean, that's that's a massive achievement from ground up. But what what are the key elements that you think drove the ability for it to grow so large from, from you know, a startup? Well, I think I think some of them were purely fortuitous. One of them was the three people. Now, now you're going to talk later on about acquisitions and mm. uh, and 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 often things go wrong because of um, uh, issues between the management. The three people we each had very different skills. We hadn't thought about that really very much, but mm. it turned out as we evolved. One of them was a chartered accountant, and, and he was very strong in the. He had more than just that, but he was very strong in the financial. Mm. Uh, the other, Graham, was uh, exceptional with clients, exceptional with candidates, a massive uh, ambassador for the business. Uh, he still recruits now, 30 years later, uh, mm. and he's one of the most respected in, in, in Australia by far. And and I was good with people and good at managing and good at getting the process right. And, and so that was actually, to help us grow, was very important. We weren't treading on each other's toes. We we had a healthy respect for what each other did. So I think I think that that was important. Uh, secondly, um, we treated our business, I think in retrospect, like it was a big business long before it was a big business. Mm, right. So we had processes in place. We had a board. We um, 
our, our, our compliance was very strong. We had structures we put in place, training manuals, and this sounds obvious now in mm. 2017, but in 1987 for a recruitment company, not you know, we, we invested a lot in branding and marketing, which people other people didn't think was important. We invested in technology earlier uh, than than most, and and I think we were quite brave, uh, maybe brave, maybe stupid, but a bit of both, which allowed us to open offices in other cities. And I think we had a very strong ethos and culture, and there was a lot of, um, um, I mean, it was a tough place to work. People still tell me that now, um, <laughs> and they say, they say, wow, it was a tough place to work, but wow, we learned a lot. In fact, I quite often stopped in the street by people, so somebody worked out that there's 67 recruitment companies in Australia and New Zealand who are now owned by people who used to work for me, which I, I, take, <laughs> I take as a, um, as a kind of, so I like to take some credit for that. <laughs> It's probably probably I'm due none of it, but I, but I am stopped by people in the street to say, wow, when you used to make us do this and you introduced that, you know, we thought it was tough, but guess what? I'm doing it now. They say to me, and, yeah. and, and we realize now how important it was. So I think we were ahead of our time in mm. that way. Uh, there was a, a big work ethic, but the other big thing, which is an interesting story, which might happen again, is that in 1990, and I don't know how long you've been around, China, but in 1990, <laughs> Australia had the recession that Mr. Keating told us we had to have, and it was a catastrophic recession. It is much was much worse than anything I've seen since. So mm. to give you an idea, we were we were handling. Uh, I remember this because people used to fax me this every day, every week. <laughs> this was before the internet, and that faxed me how many job orders we were handling. In other words, how many permanent jobs we were recruiting. And on average, in early 1990, it was about 200. That number is only important when I tell you by the end of 1990, it was 18. Wow. So that's how the demand for staff dropped. Wow. And, and our business survived. 60% of recruitment companies went under between 1990 and 1992. 60%. Wow. Right? The industry was decimated. So yeah. were many other industries. Our industry survived for three reasons. Number one, we had no debt. Mm. And I am a big fan of minimal debt, or if you've got debt, it's used strategically. You never get yourself into a position that if your revenues dropped by 50%, that you that you that, that, that suddenly the bank owns you. So that's number one. Number two, we, we had a strong temporary and contract business. Now, this is very important. For any business, because a different, um, to, you know, there might be, there will be people listening to this who are not in recruitment. Doesn't mm. matter. The lesson is, you've got annuity revenue. Mm. Okay, so so if I've got a, a hundred contractors out working today on assignments from one month to six months, that is an annuity revenue stream. Mm. A permanent placement where I charge you a fee, Joanna, for placing uh, a paralegal in your firm, that is a one-off fee and. And, and, and you pay me the fee and then you don't recruit for a year, I've got no more revenue. Mm, so, so you're talking about our recurring recurring income streams. Exactly, exactly. Mm. That was the second thing. And the third thing was, and this was all due to the, the, the partner who had the, the finance knowledge, I, I distinctly remember the meeting where I said, as the revenue started to drop and the, and the news was bad and companies were closing, I said, don't worry, guys. I will get the recruiters and we will sell ourselves out of this problem. And my approach was going to be, we're just going to go knock on more doors, talk to more people. Mm. He said, good, you do that. But in the meantime, we are cutting our costs. And we did. And we cut our costs by more than 50%. Mm. And we, we had five offices already. Our business would only be going three years. We closed two of them. Our staff dropped from 70 to 35. Mm. I remember the day we had to ask everyone in the company to take a 10% salary increase. The three of us took a 20% salary increase. All admin staff were let go. Pot plants that were hired were wheeled out the door. <laughs> it was 
And, and, and what he did that was – see, I would have cut cost 10% and said mm. I'm going to cut another 10 and I would have been chasing my tail. Mm. What, what we did uh, uh, on his prompting was we cut deep fast. Mm. As a result, we traded at a break-even for two years, which doesn't sound much, but it was a break-even, mm. uh, whereas 60% of our colleagues went bust. And actually, I would never revel, revel in the failures of anyone else or the misfortunes, but it is true to say that when the market picked up, most mm. of our – Leaders were gone. Yeah. And, yeah. and our business grew dramatically from 92 through to 2000. And we listed in, well, through to it, we listed in 1998. Mm. And some of it was because we had been through the terrible times with our clients. We were still there, mm. <laughs> last man standing. Not quite. There were lots of others. But but that that, that was the lesson that I learned uh, about trading through tough times. And we kept all our good staff. Um, and then, of course, those people who'd been burnished under fire, so to speak, who, who traded through that tough time. When the market picked up, they were like kids in a lolly shop. They were better than anyone else, well, yeah. better than any of their competitors, and they were grateful for the for the new the new world. And they were highly highly successful, and, and away we went. Mm, wow, that's that's a great story. And so, what are the elements? I mean, uh, I guess you've been very clear here about the three elements that you mm. feel really um, pulled you through. But was there a lot in that that then provided the backbone for you moving forward in all of your other ventures? Well, yes, totally. Quite often, I talk to people, you know, and they and they feel that partly they've been made from their ability to, to work through challenges, you know, and, and I see business owners who sit there at the point of these challenges. And I think it's important for them to see the benefits that they can, you know, get out of the situation once they've ridden through it, I guess. A well, story of true. hope. That's, that's, that's <laughs> true. Yeah. I look, I mean, it's trite to say it, but businesses survive or thrive because of the leadership. And, yeah. uh, you know, leadership is, is is something that can be learned. You can get better at leadership. You know, there are natural leaders. You know, none of us are Nelson Mandela or whatever, but there are other people. All people can get better at it. And and I think what we learned at that time and, and was part of our DNA was uh, you, need, you want to be successful in a people business. We don't manufacture anything in my business. Um it's about uh, developing people's skills. Mm. Re- you know, retention is not by putting in a buddy. Retention of staff isn't by paying people more or putting in a billiards table. You know, this mm. is absolute nonsense. People have got to be fairly paid. They've got to be have the incentive and all that. But really what people are looking for is communication and clarity and fairness and learning. People want to develop. I mean, I've interviewed a, m- a million people in my life for jobs, and, and, and when you ask them why are you looking to leave, the most common answer is I feel as though I've stopped growing and learning. There's wow. a lesson there for leadership. That is how you grow people. The second part is creating a high-performance culture in a business means introducing an ethos of accountability, mm-hmm. and that is lacking in so many businesses. In all our businesses, it's about accountability. It's, uh, I believe you can't manage what you don't measure, and you need to do that, and you need to make people accountable once you've given them the tools. And then the final sort of leg of that is performance management. And um, that that means if somebody is not performing, there may be good reasons for that. They haven't had enough training. You haven't taught them properly. They're going through a tough time out of work. There might be a thousand reasons that you will take into account. But at the end of the day, in a business like recruitment, where 70% of your overhead is staff salary, 70%, mm. the, the thing you need to con- – I, mean, I see – Owners of recruitment companies agonizing over whether they spend $10 extra on the advertising. And it's good to, to micromanage that to those costs. But that's not where the upside is. 
the upsides is in the people management and the productivity of the people. And, and it's long-term serial mediocrity of your people that will drag the business back. Mm. And the flip side of that is it's your responsibility as a leader to introduce an ethos of coaching. And I'm not talking about training. Training's good. Coaching's better. Where mm. people are taught on the job and, and there's a constant ethos of improvement. And I have found that that gives you great profits. It also gives you great loyalty and longevity. Mm. Let's take a short break. When we get back, Greg talks to us about his journey in getting his company listed on the ASX and the insights he has learned from staying on to grow the business after listing. And that's next. I'm Joanna Oki, and you are listening to Talking Law, a podcast brought to you by Aspect Legal. Looking for a top quality legal team to assist you in your organisation? Aspect Legal is an innovative commercial legal practice that specialises in providing fast and professional services for their clients. If you'd like to chat about how we might be able to assist you, simply head over to our website at aspectlegal.com.au to book in a time for a free discussion with one of our lawyers. While you are there, you might also like to check out our innovative product, Legal on Tap. Our SME version of this product provides a business with access to a team of lawyers to answer questions as they come up in the business. And our large business version also provides this access to our team of lawyers to ask questions, but it also provides a wide range of online-based training in contract law for non-lawyers. Both of these products are available for a ridiculously low monthly price. If you're interested, simply head over to our website at aspectlegal.com.au and check out our legal on-tap pages, or head over to our contact page and submit a form to let us know that you would like more information. Welcome back. Earlier, we drew some great insights into Greg's story of how he established his first company and how he then grew it to eight offices, 200 staff and annual sales of $60 million, all while surviving the horrific 1990 Australian recession. We then drilled into the valuable role of leadership, people management and coaching in a growing business. Now, let's jump back to our conversation with Greg and talk about how he got his company listed and the lessons he has learned from staying on to grow the business after the listing. And look, so I guess coming back then to the history of the company, so such a great story about how you dealt with the issues in the market in the 90s. So how long was it then until you then listed that company? How long did it take to recover and then for you to look at an exit through listing? Well, well, I think the market started improving in 92 and 3 and and we were grateful for that and we took a big breath and revenue started to climb and and we really emphasized the contracting to temporary business, which um, increased the value of the business and the cash flow. Well, actually, it has a negative impact on the cash flow in the short term because you pay your contractors before your clients pay you. But that's a small problem if you're funding it through a lot of permanent placements. It gives you a lot of muscle financially. And we opened offices in Melbourne and Brisbane and um, Adelaide and Perth and New Zealand. 
And uh, I think it would have been about 97 that we we had a little bit of a away day in Hunter Valley, the three owners, and we had a facilitator, which I highly recommend, by the way, because mm. you might know people very, very well, but that might be the exact barrier to honestly sharing where you're up to mm. because you've been working so hard to build this business. Who's the first one who's going to say, you know what, I feel like getting out? <laughs> That's not an easy conversation, right? Yeah. So well, the facilitator it turned out that, you know, the one of the partners was, I think, fully 12 years older than me. So, um, you know, his his time frames and, and, and goals were maybe a little different. Anyway, the, the decision to consider an exit was 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 mooted, and you know we'd had approaches because we were pretty high profile in a way, and we were profitable, very profitable. But you know, on a trade sale at that time, you may have got a, a three to five times multiple mm. on EBITs. And, you know, we listed at a 10 times multiple mm. and the share price doubled in a year, which make it a 20 times. Well, the profit went up too, but, you know, maybe it was a 15 times multiple. You are never going to get that in a trade sale. Yeah. However, there's a lot to be talked about in terms of listing. And I've got a lot of uh, clear thoughts on, on what that is like for a small business. And we were a small business. I think at that point we'd turn over 40 million maybe, making, right. four, making four. So quite profitable. Um, I, I think in retrospect that we – were too small to list because uh, while we did have institutional interest, uh, they are looking for rapid growth. And mm. to be frank, we listed with a clear vision to make acquisitions uh, and, and to take that $40 million to, to, to a $250 million business. And I don't think we did that. Well, I know we didn't do that, but I don't think we were good at making acquisitions. And I can tell you why in a moment. Mm. Um but we did make some and we grew organically and, and the business grew to 60 million and the share price doubled. So a lot of people made a lot of money and a lot of people were happy. But still, that is very small to be on the radar of institutional investors. Yeah. And um, it's very expensive to be listed, Joanna. It yes. costs you a million dollars a year. Um, it's There's a lot of compliance. And, and it's also good because if you go and see a company and and, and you're, you're, you're a listed company that they take you a lot more seriously. You get a mm. lot more credibility. So there's that. Mm. But, um, you know, I, I personally was probably in my late thirties and it was a great experience for me. I was young, I was naive. And so I, I grew up a lot, but I didn't really enjoy having to justify to institutions <laughs> or shareholders why our margin had gone down 1% in yeah. Brisbane. I didn't like, you know, previously we'd made decisions over a few beers. Hey, let's open an office in Adelaide. I know this guy. And the decision was made. Well, you can't do that as a – quite rightly you mm. can't do that. Mm. You, you, you know, the business we, – we sold down most of our shares, but not all of them. So I think the business was 60% owned by the public. And um, therefore, the majority of the board were professional directors. There are only mm. two of us on the board who were insiders, so to speak. And so therefore, you spent a lot of time um, – you know, while those people brought excellent expertise and asked questions and tested us and all the rest of it, I found that that hard. I think it's hard to go as an owner of a business to being the manager of a business you no longer technically own. Yeah, I think yes. that's I think that's a psychological, emotional challenge. Um, and while there were many many benefits, uh, financial certainly, credibility, experience, networks, um, staff made money, uh, good for attracting people, taken seriously, um, all those were good. I wonder now I would. You know, I've got a lot of clients who say, what about listing? And I say, you know, don't even consider it. You know, if you're a $150 million business and you've got a clear path to half a million, half a billion, then okay. But there's not many of those in the recruitment industry. Mm-hmm. And how long did it take you from this light bulb moment where you were all on the retreat thinking, what should we do? And then 
you came up with this idea of listing to to the listing itself? I think that uh, I think the just you know we to be honest with us is a long time ago, but so, so, <laughs> uh, and, and, approximate. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I think um, I think the retreat was probably part of a series of conversations. I remember it particularly well because the facilitator was so good at getting everybody to be uh, not honest. Everyone was honest, but to be um, uh, to reveal their cards, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it was then probably six months, uh, and then a broker or a, you know, a, a institution. I don't know what you call them anymore, but a company that took us, uh, uh, mm. managed the float. Mm. And that probably took a year, but you got, you got a lot of work to do, you know, mm. preparing, mm. get all your, you know, you, you've got to make sure your compliance is right. You know, you're going to go through a due diligence. You know, you're going to have people uh, looking under the sheets. Mm. Uh, and there wasn't anything for us to hide, but you've got to get it right. And you've also, um, got a massive amount of preparation around prospectuses and audits and all the rest of it. Mm. It took about a year mm. and, um, yeah, so I think 18 months from, hey, let's think about exiting, what's the options, to, to the listing. But you then stayed on after the yeah. listing, so it wasn't an exit from the perspective of, of you personally exiting the business at that point. No, nor was that my intention, and, and I stayed another two or three years. But mm. And I'd say this to anyone thinking of listing. You know, I've heard people say, well, because this word exit makes you think you're exiting. Mm. Well, when you list your company, that's not the end of the story. That's the beginning of the story. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> because because it's at that point that you've taken people's money mm. and they have given you money to see the share price go up. And mm. uh, they have given you money uh, or uh, given you, they have paid money for a share in your business for you to grow that business. So you are now not only um, beholden to shareholders and other stakeholders, you have a responsibility and, and, and they will stop you in the street and say, what are you doing about my share price? I mean, no joke. Um, <laughs> right. So, so it, it was usually a pretty short conversation. But, um, <laughs> um, you know, that, that's just a dramatic example of how of what your responsibility is. And it's usually a, a sort of a five-year uh, plan and, and, then, and then you can sell. I mean, in fact, I mean, I think normally, and I'm sure we had this, normally your shares are escrowed. You can't yeah. sell the shares that you've kept because they don't want people – selling and going because because you you the people who got the business there and you're the ones at that point best equipped to take it where it's got to go. Yeah. Well, look, thank you so much, Greg. You've shared so many really interesting insights from being at the coalface and I think that's what makes this such a really interesting discussion, you know, hearing hearing the experience at the coalface. So thank you so much for your time. I'm very appreciative of it. Well, I, I, I'm jokes aside, I, I'm grateful and appreciate you thinking of me for your podcast. I hope it's been useful, and 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 I certainly hope that that anyone who listens to this might pick up some bits and pieces. Because I'll be honest with you, I would love to have heard this podcast 30 years ago. Yeah. It would have saved me a lot of pain, you know, to be honest with you, because it's all learned through making most of what I'm telling you is through mistakes I've made, of which of which there is a very lengthy catalogue. You know, <laughs> Well, through that, I, I think anyone listening to this who is in any way involved um, in the industry couldn't help but um, leave the side of this podcast with um, some really useful insights from what you've been talking about. So I, I really do deeply thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your time, Joe. It's been a pleasure to, to chat to you and um, I, I, I wish you well. Well, that's it for our episode with Greg Savage of The Savage Truth. 
Now, as a quick recap, in this episode, we took a look at how Greg grew his first company from being a startup business to being a $60 million company, all while surviving the horrific 1990 Australian recession. Then we drilled into the valuable role of leadership, people management and coaching in growing a business. And finally, we closed out the episode with some wonderful insights from an analysis of Greg's experience at the coalface of an IPO. Now, if you'd like to find out more about Greg, he's got a really great blog, which I highly recommend. Just head over to gregsavage.com. On that website, you'll see a tab that links to his blog called The Savage Truth. Greg mainly blogs about recruitment, leadership, social media, and ethics, often within a framework of recruitment. But I tell you what, I think some of the things he talks about are absolutely applicable to any type of business outside of recruitment as well. We also feature the full version of this interview with Greg on our sister podcast, The Deal Room, where we talk in much more detail about his experience with listing his company, as well as drilling into how he used acquisitions as a growth strategy. And we also talk about the concept of management buyouts. So if you're interested in the elements that Greg was talking about and want to hear more, or if you're interested in hearing more about the merger and acquisition side of Greg's experience simply head over to www.thedealroompodcast.com or you can also search it on your favourite podcast player. Just look for The Deal Room Podcast and swipe back to episodes 28 and 29. Well, look, thanks again for listening in. This has been Joanna Oki and Talking Law, a podcast brought to you by our commercial legal practice, Aspect Legal. See you next time. Thanks for listening to Talking Law. Tune in next time for more smart legal tips and tricks to keep you clear of those legal landmines. If you want to get a download of today's show notes, head over to talkinglaw.com.au. Information in this podcast is general in nature, not legal advice. If you want advice for your business, visit talkinglaw.com.au.